Hi, it's Steve Indig at Sport Law. Leave me a message. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Hey, Steve. It's Dina. You aren't going to believe what just came across my desk. We need to chat. Give me a call. Welcome to the latest episode of Sportopia. We're so excited to share our knowledge and have conversation about healthy human sport. This episode, we're going to be talking about system alignment, or we might say system misalignment of our current sport system, and how shifting our language to describe system integration opens up new possibilities. Hey, Steve, I'm curious, you know, when we talk about system integration versus system alignment. I'm curious what opens up for you when you start imagining what might be possible given the current complexities in the sports system. I think I might have shared this, Dean, at a previous podcast episode, but I was I was angry uh, years ago and angry in a good way that a client had come to us to talk about policy alignment, which was the tip of the iceberg. And, and the client, we ended up doing a, a, a policy inventory and found out that they had 637 different policies to govern their sport amongst, not at the club level, but just simply at the NSO and the PSO level. Can you imagine that, Dina? 630 policies governing a particular sport across the sector. So when I was approached about that project, about policy alignment, I thought it was absolute brilliance. And we were, we've were we been able over the last number of years to reduce that 637 to a more reasonable number, which some which ended up somewhere between 20 and 30. And we, we would do them in stages and chunks, uh, dealing with particular issues that they have to get them into that policy alignment where they're where the NSO and the PSOs and the PTOs are all aligning from a policy perspective, which I think is fabulous. I, I always say being a good person in BC means being a good person in Nova Scotia and why not everywhere in between. I also love the idea the idea of policy integration to allow for PTOs and NSOs to share experiences and expertise and resources as you're all operating from the same playbook. And, and that trend has started to slowly pick up across the sports sector, again, mostly at the NSO, PTSO level. We've, we rarely see it embedded into the club system where you want to become a member, you need to comply with the alignment policy system that's in place. That's still not really happening there are a lot of PSOs or PTOs providing templates or recommendations, but the actual mandation or alignment of policy really still hasn't had a lot of, of weight in the in the system. And of course, that that deals with the alignment of policies, not the integration of the way we manage sport, which would be a very large shift in the way that sport governs itself. So I'm going to reverse the question, Dina, and what do you think about the alignment and integration among sport organizations? Well, how long do you have? Uh, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like a trip down memory lane when uh, our amazing uh, Sportopia producer, Taylor, prepares us for this. And she goes, foraging into our, I don't know, 700 blogs and, and surfaces, stuff that we've written sometimes a decade ago. And what was really interesting in preparation for today, I looked at uh, a blog that we, we had written about aligning our sports system, a not so radical idea. 
And so what comes to me up for me is when I wrote the blog, we talked about the seven P's of alignment and see what feels true for you. So you said one of the P's and that's policy. We talked about planning and we're already doing it now. So when we think about system integration or system alignment, so policies for sure is one, then planning and many of the sport organizations we support will bring in their different uh, members of their community to talk about a vision, a common vision and shared missions. And then what are the values that we're going to nourish together? So, so it informs how we treat each other inside this kind of common ecosystem. The third P was philosophy. What is our ethos? How do we want to lead as leaders? And we talked about this management by values approach to ensure that more humanistic practices, that we would be more people-centered in our approaches. And so there's the, the third P around system alignment. We talked about a fourth P being the principles for sport. And in Canada, you know, over two decades ago now, we held, hosted several conversations across the country uh, to talk about what are the values and ethics that we want to see to align this system called sport. And out of that came this, uh, this ethos, if you will, called true sport, which is the seven principles that you and I, Steve, and it turns out thousands of people believe are needed to help children and youth and athletes and coaches and administrators to thrive, right? So the seven principles of true sport. Then there is programs. So as you and I know, you know, sport is volunteer driven and it requires so much resourcing to ensure that the volunteers who are the vast majority of decision makers in the country are aligned around shared visions. And you and I would also agree that that creates all kinds of misalignment. So ensuring that we have programs in place to a nourish the, the directors, right? The volunteer directors. Um, so we're, you and I are thrilled that we launched governance essentials to be able to help do that. But we have other examples of other system alignment programs, like those brought forward through long-term athlete development, for instance, right? So I think we can show how programs and maybe, you know, programs around safer sport, like respect in sport are examples of programs that do help people align around a common uh, vision. The, I have two more. Uh, one is around people. And, you know, you and I talk about, do we have the right people in the right, right seats on this bus going in the right direction? And so it's really important for me that these people have the right mindset and skill set and heart set. So I think we're starting to see more attention, especially in today's uh, timeframe, being, being, um, being asked of the people inside the ecosystem of sport to ensure they're more emotionally intelligent, to ensure that they have the knowledge they need to be at their best. And then finally, you know, the, the last one, and we'll probably want to dance there. Um, I'm going to pause after this one is pathways. Do we have the right pathway? And here's what I would offer. Governance is different than the system and structures that underpins it. You know, when we talk about good governance, most of us think about the board of directors that sit inside, you know, their directorship. But you and I understand it as governance is the, the relationship between all of the systems and structures that underpins the board of director role and responsibility. And maybe, you know, and I'll pause there, I'm going to throw it back to you. 
seems to me that sport has, you know, needed a, an overhaul, uh, a reimagining of our governance system. And we would also argue that much of what's happening right now in sport is due to an outdated, you know, misaligned governance system that's making it very, very hard for well-intentioned people to do the right thing. So I'm curious, Steve, after you've heard of the, the seven P's of system alignment, can you see why system integration might be, you know, the, the next move for us? What do you think? Well, I love the idea. And, and you know this firsthand, Dina, we repeat, a lot of what we do from a consulting perspective is repeat business. We do the same thing over and over again. And I, I spoke about being a good person in BC or Ontario or Nova Scotia, which means we, why can't we have consistent codes of conduct? But why can't we also have consistent, consistent strategic plans, consistent direction to where we want to go? as a sport and of course a club success is a, is a province or territory success as it is at a national level success so i'm a big advocate for this i feel like the resources that we have in sport we are um they're very thin and and we take usually the first person that puts their hand up and and i think we've talked about this before when we talk about you mentioned the seven p's i'm going to talk about the people part right now I recently heard from an executive director that they spend 95% of their time managing their board. Can you imagine that? 95% of your time managing your board. So how are you actually supposed to move your particular sport forward from A to B if you're just got, you know, managing your board from A to A? And, and I think as we've talked about before, when we talk about board composition, one, I think sports use it as a mechanism to get volunteers. And, and I think there are places for people to volunteer, but not necessarily on the board. As I like to say, Dina, being on the board is boring. Unless you're interested in bylaws and governance and policies and strap plans and financial statements, the board's probably not the right place for you. You know, I think a lot of people get involved in sport because they like talking about sport who's going to win the provincial champions, the national champions, how are we going to do in the world cup? Like I get it. That's the fun stuff. And there is a place for those people on the high performance committee, on the technical committee, on the officials committee, the coaches committee, all those operational issues that we see. But if we have the ability to get the right people in the right places to share those resources, I just think sport would be in a far better place rather than trying to water down the pool that we currently have. And, and how do we do that? I mean, I, I again, I may have spoken about this on previous recordings, but I love the idea of a nominations committee and a skills assessment of your board to see what gaps you want to fill and to find the right person that you have that to, who can fill that spot and that expertise. And and I love the idea uh, idea also of amalgamation. Do we truly need... 700 clubs do can we not have half that where the resources would be shared rather than than again thin down because we need to have you know 600 board meetings instead of 300 board meetings depending on the size of your sport so i i am a very big advocate for that that integration that alignment that amalgamation and and sometimes it's interesting to hear it i was at a at a club at a club uh, annual general meeting a couple of weeks ago and, and the president of the organization, all in, in positive conversation, wanted to be the best club in the area, which meant maybe to the detriment of other clubs in the area. So 
you know, in my mind, I'm saying, well, why are these clubs competing for the same fields, the same players, the same coaches, the same officials, rather than looking at it from an adversarial perspective, why not look at it from an integration perspective? Why can't we be one club instead of paying six executive directors, we're paying one instead of six boards of 10 people, we're one. So I, I really love the idea of it. Um, I'm going to stop there, Dina, and see what you you want to pick apart on on what I said. <laughs> no, I just want to kind of build build from what you said. You know, I, I think um, here's what I believe to be true. You know, as someone who's been swimming around in the sport ecosystem for about thirty years, I think it's really complex right now, and I I, I believe that a lot of the societal issues that are knocking on sports door are requiring us to pause and kind of grapple with how are we designed? How are we set up? Are we built for purpose? Are we able to um, meet the fundamental legal requirements of, of what it means to be a 21st century sport organization? And my favorite question, and I think you know this one, if we were to design you know, a 21st century uh, sport ecosystem, what would it look like today? Would we actually design it requiring, you know, a, a volunteer-led, a volunteer-managed system? And what you and I know, the, the landscape of sport at the national level is not what's reflected at the community level. Most of the community sport organizations rely on devoted, dedicated volunteers who are doing the best that they can, primarily because their children are involved in the sport club and primarily their parents of children uh, who are playing, you know, representative sport, right? Competitive sport. And so Steve, I, I you know, while I, I, I've participated in that giving back, right? I've been a volunteer with sport organizations. What I think we're seeing now, especially as it relates to uh, conduct issues and issues of maltreatment, Sport needs to professionalize. And what I mean by that is we need to ensure that we have the right people who have the right skill set in, right, uh, in the right roles. And we need to provide proper oversight to ensure that those people are being held accountable to you know, their, their, um, their roles. If we're relying on well-intentioned and devoted volunteers who A, may not have the right skill set or knowledge or competency to serve in their you know, volunteer director position, or kind of sort of want to you know, be a coach, but are using practices that they would have you know, adopted when they were a kid, who you and I would you know, now know as being outdated practices we're really putting ourselves at risk. We're exposing sport to all kinds of risks. I guess what it comes down, you know, for me, it, it's, it's this. I see the field of sport the way I do the classroom. And I have three children. So the expectations that I have of the teachers and the principals and the learning experience for my children in school was the exact same expectations I had for my kids in sport. And that's why I volunteered. I wanted to help ensure that their experience was a positive one. And based on those seven principles, the other P that we talked about. And so I didn't want it to be by accident, Steve. I really wanted my children uh, to experience a good experience. And my husband, Pierre, did the same thing for you know other sports that the kids enjoyed. 
And so I think as we move forward, one of the things that sport's going to have to (laughs) really, I think, start to imagine, it might be the eighth P and that's professionalized, you know, standards. What opens up for us when we start uh, investing in sport? You know, sport was a, a right, not a privilege, just like school and education is. And, and universal healthcare, what would it feel like if we professionalized, you know, the, the ecosystem so that the, the people inside the ecosystem might feel resourced and those, those expectations are, are clear? I don't know. What do you think? The, the conversations happening, Dina, maybe less so at the provincial national level, but it definitely is starting to happen a little bit at the club level. I have been involved in several club amalgamations. I've been involved in several regional amalgamations when we talk about those districts or those regional organizations. But what's interesting that comes up routinely is you're trying to fire me. You're trying to take me out of my job. And of course, that's not the context at all. What the motivation is, is to try and maximize the use of resources. Why do we need to have 400 AGMs? Why can't we have 10 Mm-hmm. You know, and and I also think the landscape, as you've addressed at the particularly at the community level, I hear it all the time. And as as you know, I do hundreds of bylaws and on on an annual basis, helping organizations rewrite or update or comply with Anka or whatever's going on. And routinely, there's a very long conversation about quorum. How many people constitutes a meeting? And I'll turn around and ask them, how many people, how many members do you have? And they'll say, you know, a larger soccer club could have 6,000, 8,000 members or even more. Well, how many people out of the 8,000 show up at your AGM? 12. Mm -hmm. And the landscape of sport has also changed, in my opinion, where, yes, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, we were membership-based organizations where we volunteered our time and we were a board member or a coach or an official or whatever we were. But I think we know that sport is now, in my opinion, being looked at more as a business. And I will pay you my fees. I want my eight-year-old to play soccer every Sunday from one to two. But And I want a good experience. But please don't ask me to volunteer. Please don't ask me to come to your AGM. It, I'm just not interested. I'm too busy. I've got other things to do. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to evolve with those changes. And I really think that alignment and integration and, and less organizations would help that and you know you you and I talk about this all the time Dina if if softball decided that every softball should be the color of orange um you know and 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 an NSO says they're going to be orange that has to be ratified by a thousand about close to a thousand different board members and I know it's a silly example but if there is integration into common decision making common strategic planning those decisions will get will get implemented much smoother. And, and when we talk about a complaint management side, also you and I debate about the, the use of the term safe sport all the time, but is there consistency on the management, the policies, the decision makers, and the smaller the groups that we have, the less groups that we have, the more integration we have. And, you know, it just makes a lot of sense to suggest that a community club strat plan should be very much aligned or a part of the provincial territorial strat plan and the NSO strat plan. And there are sports who have done it. You know, they may have not done it legally from an amalgamation perspective, but even from a philosophy perspective, 
to suggest that we are all on the same page. I, I just see it as a huge benefit. Yeah. And I, I love that. And, you know, it, it feels like it could be the ninth P profit, you know, the way, when I think about profit, I talk about yes, financial. So what's the, what are the resources, both time and money uh, that we need to be able to deliver on our, on our mission. Um, but there's also the social profit, you know, and, and sport, I don't like calling us not for profit. I like to actually define us by what we are here to serve. So if we play with your concept around social profits and the amount of money and goodwill and time that gets exhausted because the churning over of these volunteers that come in for a very finite period of time while their kid is involved, you know, they're there to, to, to serve the interest of the organization that they're a part of. So they don't really understand how their club kind of fits into, you know, the district association, if there is one, and how that relates to the provincial or territorial organization, and how that relates back up to the national sport organization. And for those people who are listening, to think that the National Association can just like, with the click of its finger, mandate, dictate that what happens up here has to be delivered down at the storefront, People don't understand that these 34,000 sport organizations are pretty much autonomous, right? Provincial organizations need to be members in good standing of their national organization, but the hand that feeds them the, is typically the government uh, in, in each of the jurisdictions. And the local association, they're the storefronts, right? They're the boots on the ground. They're getting their, their dollars, their membership fees due by the people who are consuming their product. So if we were to just start to imagine, if we were to design sport in a 21st century kind of way to ensure fundamental legal obligations are maintained, and then you and I know that you can't stop there. You have to talk about, well, what are the ethical or moral imperatives for us to fulfill our promise of wanting to manage by values and operate against these true sport principles? It sounds a little bit like Sportopia, given what we've said and our over-reliance on, on a volunteer structure that can't meet the needs of a 21st century uh, system. So for that reason, I think we have to move away from system alignment because it's virtually impossible to do that and move towards, the real invitation for me, Steve, is to move towards system integration, where a national aso association would have direct control and oversight down to the storefront. That's my version of Sportopia. So what you're thinking, Dean, is you want to turn sport into a Tim Hortons franchise. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be the first time we've talked about that, Steve. So so take it, so take it from there. What do you think? <laughs> I actually uh, met somebody who works there. There's about 4,000 uh Tim Horton franchises in uh in on in, in Canada. You know, it's interesting when we talk about the integration, uh, maybe I'll, I'll peel a, an onion back, a layer back. What are the minimum standards to become a sport organization? And I'm, <laughs> I'm saying that figure. a bit, I'm, I'm saying that a bit rhetorically because there's obviously requirements for Sport Canada to be a recognized national sport organization. There's requirements from the province and territorial governments to get their recognition. And sometimes, Sometimes I personally don't see it very often. The province or territory will actually have minimum standards for a club to be a club. 
And usually, unfortunately, in my opinion, it's usually, well, you have to have a coach, certified coach. You have to have a certain number of players and you're, you're deemed a club. But as we've talked about in all the different podcasts and what we do on a daily basis, that's so, I don't know, what's 1% of what we do, employment, complaints, um, strategic planning, budget, financial audits, accessibility, EDI, like you just keep, you know, keep going. And, and uh, those minimum standards usually get lost. So if we have system integration and we're all moving in the right direction, we in, in short, you know, we try and put ourselves out of business mm -hmm. rather than doing 600 codes of conducts every year, we do 10. And instead of doing a strategic plan for pick a sport, a swimming club, a swimming region, a swimming province, a swimming Canada, we only do one. And I, I would, it would be fabulous to see it, to get to that point. And I, I still think you can have the proper checks and balances in place to allow for this to happen. Yeah. Okay. Here's the 10th P <laughs> passion, right? And, and there are so many, there are so many passionate people in sport and, and what we're seeing now is this, this tension between old ways of doing business and, and then the call, the invitation to modernize our practices so that we can fulfill sports full potential, right? That's what got me into sport. That's what's had me stay in, inside working alongside you for, you know, nearly 16, 17 years. And, and what I would say is we can turn that same passion into curiosity. How do we get curious about what are the limitations of the sector? How do we roll out massive new programs like a safe sport commitment around complaint management, right? And there's lots to say about that, which we'll do in a future uh, episode. And I, I, when I hear that, Steve, I, I remain hopeful, right? And it's not to, to uh, say that we no longer want to be volunteer resourced. I would say quite the opposite. The volunteers, I think, want some further direction and clarity on their role. You want to align so that they're in the right seat, you know, on this bus that they really care about. And you're giving them roles where that they can contribute fully to the extent of their time and their area of competency. What a lot of the volunteer directors I've had the privilege of working with, often they'll say, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to deal with this massive issue. And you and I would say, well, actually, that's what you did sign up for. You just didn't know it. And because sport right now is in a, in a very um, much needed transition, we need to be grappling with these issues. I would say that the really kind and compassionate move is for us to you know, allow this system that was designed in the 1970s to finally, you know, let's give it an exit or a funeral. Let's bury that system to allow something more modern that will be professionally supported where there's greater accountability. And I think what you've just said, Steve, is, a, is really brilliant. I think we're going to see, you know, most people will say, well, we can't afford it. If we have to pay all these people, we can't afford it. And I would say, well, first of all, you can't afford not to. And second of all, to your point, and it's a useful, uh, it's a really useful thought experiment. So if you imagine one national sport organization with a budget, and then you go underneath them and you ask, well, what's the budget of all your PTSOs? And then what's the budget? Just take a, a guess at what the budget is of the 500 clubs. You've got a pretty healthy budget to deliver 
quality, ethical, safe sport. That's what I hold as a possibility. Uh, I, I'm with you 100%, Dina. And, and, you know, I think we all have our own opinions. And, and you you and I have, I would say we we wear two hats. We have our professional opinions that we deal with with issues and, and matters on a daily basis. And then, of course, as parents, we have our own opinions. And, and my kids are 11 and 9, uh, both participating in the sport and recreation art world. And I can tell you firsthand that, I don't have complaints about the experiences that they've had to date. They have great coaching. They have great teammates. There's great parents involved with the team. It's great, but I'm going to make a word up here. Could it be, it's maybe not a way, I made up word. I was going to say, could it be greater, mm. right? And I, and I think it can be. Why, why can't it be? And if we are sharing those resources, and sharing the money and sharing the ideas that we have, why can't it be a better experience? And that, again, that's what motivates me every day to come sit at, at, at my desk and answer the phone and write emails and mm -hmm. do the work that we do across the country. So maybe, maybe that's a good place for us to end Steve. And, and I would echo that. I mean, why are we even doing these, this, why did we launch Sportopia? We're doing it because you and I do have uh, the privilege of being in conversations with people from across the country, and we have a particular, uh, you know, experience and, and ideas about how sport can fulfill its full potential. And, and I think that more of these ideas need to be shared and, and people need to stay open-minded and curious about, you know, what might be needed to help sport um, fulfill that potential. So I'm really grateful that we've had a chance to have this conversation and uh, you know, what I'd love to share more is if you are curious, if, if any of our listeners are curious about anything that we've shared here, there are three blogs that will be linked in the episode notes. Uh, one of them is aligning our sports system, a not so radical idea. The second is towards generative governance. And then the third is a public accounting is needed to save sport. So some, some ideas, some, some maybe in, insights that we have accumulated to help people kind of grapple and have these much needed, important conversations. So I think over to you, Steve, to say the last few words. Thanks, Dina. And thank you to all our listeners. Uh, we look forward to not only sharing our vision of Sportopia, but also collaborating with our community to elevate sport. To have your say in Sportopia, email us at hello at sportlaw.ca or on social media at sportlawca to let us know what you want to hear about next. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you, everyone.